Second Maccabees is a book that describes events that take place in between the time period after the conclusion of the Old Testament before the beginning of the New Testament. That's called the intertestamental period, including this event that took place around 167 BC. Antiochus Epiphanes is a Greek king who's trying to Hellenize the Jews living in Judah. And that means he's trying to make Greeks out of them. And one of the ways he's doing that is by forbidding them to obey the law of Moses, including the dietary restrictions. So in this one event, it's described in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, here's a Jewish woman, she has seven sons. And Antiochus and his men are beating the seven sons, trying to force them to eat pork, right, against the law of Moses. They're refusing. And so they, uh, Antiochus cuts out the tongues, and he cuts off the hands and the feet, and then executes the, the oldest six brothers, the oldest six sons, leaving the mother and the youngest son who have witnessed these events. Now it comes the youngest son. And Antiochus speaks to the mother and, and tries to persuade her to talk to her son to convince him to eat the pork and thus spare his life. She does speak to her son. Now, what she says to him, and then what transpires, I want to come back to at the end of the message today. But it is a moment of truth. It's a moment of truth. In our sermon series today, in Esther, we have come to Esther's moment of truth. If you remember, when we last left the story, Haman's devilish edict has gone out through all the provinces of Persia, that the Jews are going to be slaughtered about 11 months hence, that, that edict has gone out, and now Esther has to decide who she is and what she stands for and what she's willing to do. It's her moment of truth. What I want us to see this morning, a, a moment of truth, both for Esther and for us, is comprised of three parts. Uh, part number one, it is a moment of crisis. Moment of truth is a moment of crisis. Esther chapter 4 verse 1, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, obviously, the putting on of sackcloth and ashes is an expression of grief, especially in that culture. It's actually a dramatic way of identifying with death itself, the putting of the ashes on, its head, on your head. Normally, this would have been done after a death as part of the grief in the morning, but the Jews are doing this before the attacks. Part of their understanding that this edict by the king is absolutely irrevocable and their destiny, their fate has been sealed. One of the things I want us to notice, though, is this whole, this, this whole description of the lamenting process, one of the ways, kind of as a sidebar, that we can deal with the crises in our own lives. And we don't have a death edict hanging over our heads, but we are all broken in various ways, and we are in pain, and people have sinned against us in this cursed world, and we've sinned against other people. And lament is a prayer language of grief to relieve some of the stress that that pain brings into our lives. I want to illustrate this with uh, balloons today. I need a volunteer to help me out real quick. Raul, would you come up here? Thank you for volunteering. And um, 
it's going to be real quick. And it, it, I'm not going to embarrass you or anything, but I want you to blow up this balloon. I'm going to be blowing up this balloon. Kind of stand here close to me so we want to both be in the light so they can see us on TV. You're going to be a star. Yeah, okay, so we'll just blow these up real quick. <laughs> Now, let's just say that, um, you know, these two balloons represent, uh, you know, my balloon has a hole in it, Rob. <laughs> um, this is one you're supposed to get. Now, I may have to keep blowing on this one. All right, this may not work out the way I thought. They represent the two ways of dealing with stress in our life. Now, one way is this right here. All right, just to pop it. It explodes because it builds up. The other way is to release it. Right? It kind of did work out. Yeah. yeah, your part's done. You can have a seat. You did great. And this one goes in the garbage. <laughs> so if we suppress our pain, our grief, our lament, and this is what I tend to do, by the way. I'm not a very emotional person. I'm not an emoting person. I'm not, I should say, a very expressive person. For me to raise my hands in worship, that's a big deal. Hardly ever do that. Some of you, maybe you can relate to that. I've watched you guys worship. There's, you know, most of you are very reserved like me. And if, you, if we stuff things down, the pressure builds up, right? And you have an explosion. Now, that's okay. It releases the pressure, but it does damage to the vessel. And the other way is just to let it out, let that pressure out. And the means that God has given to us for doing that is a prayer language called lament. Lament, the kind of thing we're reading about here in Esther. Here's four parts of lament using just Psalm 13 as a model. Psalm 13:1. the first part is to turn toward God. First of four, turn toward God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, although there's a complaint in this prayer, at least it's a prayer. And the psalmist is bringing that complaint to God, not pulling away from God or from God's people. Part number two, bring the pain. Bring the pain to God. Verse two, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So bring in the pain, narrate the pain, speak the pain. If it's embarrassing to do that out loud, get off into a quiet place and speak that out to God. This is the releasing of the pain to the Lord. Third part, ask boldly for help. Verse 3, same song. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. It's God, I'm suffering. It's painful. It's going on a long time. I need your help which in the midst of a crisis may be an expression of faith in God, asking God for his help. And then the fourth element of lament is to choose to trust. These lamenting psalms all end in trust. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. One of the means God has given us for dealing with crisis in our lives is prayers of lament. All right, so anyhow, Talking about a moment of truth is a moment of crisis. Secondly, a moment of truth is a moment of spiritual challenge. A moment of spiritual challenge. Through an intermediary, Mordecai sends a message to Esther. Esther chapter 4, verse 8. Go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for your people. Esther's going to be reluctant to do this. Esther's going to resist a little bit. 
and understandably so. First of all, this is illegal. It was illegal to go into the presence of the king, King Xerxes, if you had not been summoned and she had not been summoned. There were only seven officials in the entire kingdom who were allowed to go to Xerxes without having been summoned and not be under the threat of death. And she was not one of these seven officials. It was punishable by death. And secondly, if she does this intercede for the Jews, she's going to have to reveal something about herself that she's been hiding. And that is that she is a Jew herself. And Xerxes has shown himself to be very impatient with a wife who is disobedient, Vashti. How much more so a wife who's being disobedient and shows herself to have been dishonest. She can fully expect that he would ever either execute her or put her aside and choose a new wife. And that's the third thing. By the way, we've already seen in the previous sermon, chapter 2, the, the second assembling of the virgins, right? The second assembling of the virgins, which indicates... Xerxes' ties to her are not that strong. There's no heartstrings to be pulling on here. Very easy for him to replace her. And she admits to Mordecai she has not been in the presence of the king for 30 days. And with a self-indulgent king like this, he has not been sleeping alone. These risks are piling, piling, and piling up for Esther. Of course, she's reluctant. So uh, Mordecai sends her more encouragement. Chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family, your father's family, will perish. Now, this is not so much a threat from Mordecai. Mordecai has shown nothing but love and care and kindness for Esther, his adopted daughter. But it's more of a warning that, yeah, she can step aside. And in the short term, she may save her life if she doesn't do anything. But in the long term, it's not going to work out well. There is a risk for her in doing the right thing. There's often a risk and a price to pay to do the right thing. But there's also a risk in doing the wrong thing. And that's the greater risk. And he finishes with this spiritual challenge, the latter part of verse 14. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, the day for the annihilation of the Jews, as you recall, was set by the casting of lots, 11 months hence, kind of like hence, kind of like dice that are thrown. Pure chance for the setting of that day. But you know what Solomon wrote in Proverbs? Man casts the lots, man casts the dice, but it's God who determines how they fall. And Mordecai is challenging Esther to think about the circumstances in her life in a different light. That Esther, maybe it's not pure chance that you were amongst the virgins years ago who were assembled for the next queen to be chosen. Maybe it's not happenstance that you gained Xerxes' attention. Maybe it's not pure chance that you, a Jewish woman, would be the queen of Persia at a time when the Jews are under an edict for annihilation. Maybe we can look back on those events and instead of seeing accidents and chance, we can actually see the orchestration of the hand of God, His sovereignty and His purpose in bringing you to such a time as this. Totally different way of looking at what she was 
experiencing. That's a different way of us looking at ourselves as well. You know, maybe it's not just by chance or by accident that we are who we are and where we are. That we are living where we are right now in this country at this time. Maybe that's not an accident. In the neighborhoods in which God has placed us intersecting the lives of those particular neighbors with what they're going through, maybe we're there for a purpose and a reason. And the families, our families, interacting with our brothers and sisters and our parents and our children, maybe that's not just an accident. Maybe we're there for a reason and a purpose. In the church that we find ourselves, in our schools, in our place of business, with our work colleagues, as we intersect their lives, maybe we're not there just by chance and happenstance, but for a purpose and for a reason. Our mission of the month is Rafa House International. They rescue children in four countries from sex slavery. And Rafa House was founded years ago by Stephanie Freed. Now, at that time, Stephanie Freed was uh, just a housewife. And I don't mean that in any demeaning way to housewives. I know being a housewife is a full-time job and it's hard work and all of that. It's very critical very important. But I'm just saying she had no experience in leading an international organization. She was a housewife. She was challenged by her father to consider the plight of children who were in sex slavery. And she says she didn't want to do that. She didn't want to think about what was happening there. She had a beautiful home and a family and two grown daughters and a husband with a, a great life. But she heard a challenge. And I want you to hear it Uh, from her own words. There's a movie about Rafa House International. It's kind of a documentary. And I want to show you a two-minute clip as as Stephanie talks about how she wound up getting involved. Let's roll that. Look, Berkey. What is this? Oh, my gosh. That's Grandpa. Oh, I love vintage war pictures. Oh, my God. Like 1960. (laughs) My dad has been working in Southeast Asia for many years, and he began to talk to me about trafficking issues that were going on there several years ago. And there was a point where he actually challenged me to do something about it. The truth is that I didn't want to do anything about it. I didn't even want to know it was happening. I had this great life going on, you know? I had a husband, I had two little girls, a beautiful home, and there was just no way I wanted to be involved. I did agree to research the issue of human trafficking, and whenever I learned what was, what was happening, especially involving children, there was no way I, I couldn't be involved. Literally in my first week in country, I had the opportunity to go on a slave retrieval. There was a young girl who was a slave in a junkyard. This large extended family that owned this junkyard also lived in the junkyard. And this little girl was their slave during the day and she was raped at night. And I want people to understand that children who are labor trafficked are very often sexually exploited as well. These people think that they own these children and they can do whatever they want with them. And when I walked into that disgusting place, this beautiful little girl came running over to us and through our translator, she began saying, please don't leave me here, please help me. 
please help me? And in that moment, I knew that she was going to be the voice for thousands and thousands of kids for me. I cannot forget her voice. All right, a moment of spiritual challenge becomes a moment of truth. Uh, I could talk about other examples. We could talk about Bonnie Martinelli back there, housewife, scrapbook business, and um, volunteered at Caronet, but a couple of years ago had the opportunity to become the executive director. She seized that opportunity, that spiritual challenge, now oversees an organization with five employees, 35 volunteers, saving babies, mentoring families. I could talk about other examples. Those are a couple of high-profile ones, so they make good examples. But listen, we may not be uh, a Stephanie Freed, may not be a Bonnie Martinelli. Our opportunities or the crises that we face or the crucibles that we're in, those opportunities and the spiritual challenges may not be as significant of that. You may not be the Queen of Persia. Pretty sure you're not. I know I'm not the Queen of Persia. But nevertheless, the challenges that come to us are no less consequential to the people that we're going to impact and that God can use us for in such a time as this. Do you hear the challenge of Mordecai? You are who you are and where you are for such a time as this. Moment of truth. It's a moment of spiritual challenge. And then the third part that makes up the moment of truth, it's a moment of transformation. It's a moment of transformation. Picking up the narrative in verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa. Fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai's challenge to Esther has transformed Esther. No longer is she willing just to be a passive person floating in the current of Persian culture, just going along. No longer is she willing simply to take directions and do whatever Mordecai tells her to do. For the first time, she turns around and she starts swimming upstream against the current. For the first time in her life, she stands up and does something at personal risk to herself for someone else. Up until this point in the narrative, the fourth chapter, Esther hasn't spoken a word. But now she stands up and she begins to give directions to Mordecai. You go do this. You get the people together. You begin to pray. And I'm going to go to the king in three days. And if I perish, I perish. She shows herself to be an able person, puts a plan into action, begins to leverage what influence she has with the king, and begins to overcome the enemy of her people. All because she has a different perspective of who she is and why she is where she is. She is destiny's child, and you are destiny's child. And I don't mean the girl singing group. I mean that you and I, we are children of destiny. We want to stop seeing ourselves as accidents of time and place. That's how a pagan thinks. Right? That's how an atheist thinks. Oh, I'm an accident of time and place. There is no greater destiny. There is no greater purpose. There are no greater higher moral values. There is no cause for which I should sacrifice my convenience or my time or my fortune, my good health. That's how a pagan thinks. But a Christian thinks of themselves as a creation of God, 
person of his destiny, his purpose, in the flow of God's will, with a call on our lives to fulfill his purpose and his kingdom. Now, we may think, well, Steve, I mean, that's clear about Esther. She was the queen of Persia. She's got a book named after her. That's all her, but I don't have the same call of God on my life. Au contraire. First of all, Esther didn't know that when she was in the midst of the crisis. That was only obvious in retrospect. And secondly, the Bible teaches that we as Christians are all in the flow of God's purpose. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things that he planned for us long ago. What about this business of if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. That we're to sacrifice for God and his kingdom if we lose our lives, so be it. Is that reasonable? Is that rational? Is that even desirable? Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the linchpin of our faith, is it not? The linchpin of our faith is that this short, brief, sometimes brutal and painful life on planet Earth, this life is not all there is. It is a prelude. It is a jumping off point to another life. There will be a resurrection and then a life on new earth that in every way, both in quantity and in quality, is better than this life right here. And that God calls us to live for him. And if we must sacrifice the last full measure of our devotion, that it will be worth it. That's what we believe. And we have a source of courage that Esther didn't even have access to. And that is, we know about the resurrection of Jesus. Shortly before, Jesus challenged any disciple of his to deny himself, take up his cross and follow Jesus and lose his life for the kingdom. We read this, Matthew writes, from that time, Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, to suffer, to be killed, and to be raised on the third day. So it's not just a matter of we Christians putting on the green eye shades and we're doing this risk-reward calculation. If we give up a few things here in this life, that we're going to get rewarded for it in the next life. It's not just a formula, it's a person that we are following. The most worthy person. Jesus said, it is necessary for me to die. Why was it necessary? It wasn't necessary for him. It was necessary for us. That was our only chance and our only hope of life. Of life. He is worthy. And so the mother, the Jewish mother, leaned over to her last child, her youngest son, and she spoke to him in their native tongue, Hebrew, so Greek Antiochus could not understand what she was saying. And here's what she said, 2 Maccabees 7. My son, have pity on me. Remember that I carried you in my womb for nine months and nursed you for three years. I have taken care of you and looked after you and all your needs up to the present day. So I urge you, my child, to look at the sky and the earth, consider everything you see there, and realize that God made it all from nothing, just as he made the human race. Don't be afraid of this butcher. Give up your life willingly. 
and prove yourself worthy of your brothers, so that by God's mercy I may receive you back with them at the resurrection. Before she could finish speaking, the boy said, the boy said, King Antiochus, what are you waiting for? Here are my hands. Here are my feet. The God that made them will give them back to me. I refuse to obey your orders. I only obey the commands of God and the law of Moses. And the author writes, and so the boy died with absolute trust in the Lord. Last of all, the mother was put to death. And although she saw her seven sons die in a single day, she endured it with great courage because she trusted the Lord. She combined womanly emotion with manly courage and spoke words of encouragement to each of her sons. That event and a couple of other events like it sparked what historians call the Maccabean Revolt, led by Judas Maccabee, 167 B.C., they threw off the rule of the Greeks and Antiochus Epiphanes and lived in freedom, the Jews lived in freedom for the next 100 years in Judah. A moment of truth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we would be reminded today that we here in this room, we know we are not accidents of time and place. We are men and women of destiny. We have a role to play in your kingdom is just as critical and just as important as that of Esther. We pray, God, that you will fire our hearts with the courage of these women who have been our, our example, with our knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus and our hope of eternal life in him. We know who we are, why we are here, and we take our stand with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.